You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Spring training has started, and that means the spring training giveaway has also started. Prizes include a shirt from Ramshirts.com, Crush City Tees, and a custom Astros baseball podcast dugout mug. If you want to enter to win these prizes, send an email to astrosbaseballpodcast at gmail.com. Somewhere in your email, the subject or the body, enter the phrase, let's go. Be sure to go to ramshirts.com for all your custom apparel needs. And without further ado, here's today's guest, MLB official scorer and historian, David Feldman. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan. For the fans of the Houston Astros, here is your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. It's Friday, February 19th. My guest today is David Feldman, Oakland A's and baseball historian, a Major League Baseball official scorer co-host of the green and bold podcast and many other things you you have your hat in or is that if that's the phrase you use david feldman welcome back to the show good to talk to you rob how you doing in the uh, the cold of houston i'm doing good i'm just sitting here and uh i don't know what i think it's like 60 in my house wow. but I'm, I'm sitting here with sweatpants i have a hoodie on I have the window open, looking at the beautiful snow that's left over in the front yard. <laughs> but luckily, luckily, I I didn't have power for a couple of days. But you know, it would come on for a little bit here and there. And uh, but the last two days, I've had it the whole. You know, there was a an hour or so. One day I didn't have it, but pretty much the last two days I've had it and been warming up. And but I'm, I'm still having to go look for food. Because oh, being being a single man, of course, I have no groceries, so <laughs> I just <laughs> I just got to drive up and down the street trying to find something open. How you been doing? Good, you know. We're uh, here out in California. A uh, little rain today, but uh, otherwise, it's been a pretty mild winter, uh, which we're all pretty thankful for. We actually had a couple weeks in January where it's like spring, so it really got everybody's mind starting to turn to baseball because it, it, it felt like baseball out. It, it was so nice out here. So it's, it's, uh, and we're getting closer, right? Spring training has started. So baseball is here. That is correct. And you spoke about the weather. Uh, I think it, it snowed on Wednesday here and 
this coming up Wednesday, it's supposed to be a high of 74. So that's Look how it that. is in Texas. We go from snow, seven days later, it's going to be 74. That's, well, see, that's more like it. That's going to feel really, really good. All right, so let me let me ask you about this. This is the first thing I want to talk about. Uh, you being a baseball historian and February uh, being Black History Month. I haven't really spoke a lot about this, but but uh, back in December, the uh, I guess Major League Baseball reclassified the Negro Leagues as uh, Major Leagues. What what do you think about that? It was a long time coming um, to recognize these guys as the top level of baseball that they were, and I hate to use the word, but allowed to play. Um, I mean, these were some of the the greatest athletes of the early part of the 20th century, and they weren't able to play with their, their white counterparts. They were, they were stopped from playing. I mean, they were able to play, but it was the people in charge of, of baseball, of Major League Baseball, who wouldn't allow it, um, which is just a shame to think about. Uh, that this that this took place. So yeah, to be recognized as major league is a long time coming because they were the top of their field, and there was there was no doubt at the competition level that they provided. Now, the only thing that I have concerns about is the statistical record, because records kept in the Negro leagues were not always exact, and there's not as much, you know, detailed numbers and record keeping that we've had in Major League Baseball. Now, the people who are in charge of this from Elias and Major League Baseball, the researchers from Sabre and, and the other places are, again, at the top of their class of looking this stuff up. So I, I have no doubt that they are going to be as accurate as they can be with the records that they find. My problems is with the records themselves. I don't know how accurate those are. Um, and those are the things I have questions about. So when they start talking about changing some of the stats numbers and you know, Willie Mays has 660 career homers. Well, he hit one in the Negro Leagues. And we're going to say he has 661. I don't know if we need to go that far, to be honest with you. I don't mind the numbers being separate. It's not like we're counting Ichiro's hits in Japan and putting them with his hits in Major League Baseball. And, and you know, the Japanese Baseball League is as Major League as it comes as well. Um, so we can keep it separate. I would, I would rather see the numbers kept separate, but that's just me. But as far as being honored as a Major League, 100%. As far as I can see, there's only one record, and I don't know if it's officially going to change or it's going to change, but, and I could be wrong, but it says Hugh Duffy hit 440 one season, and it's like the 1800s, I think, but Josh Gibson hit 441, so he would right. be the new record. Uh, he'd, he'd have the new Major League Baseball record. Yeah, it, and that's where it's it's interesting because I just I kind of wish we would just say you know Major League Baseball is its own league, Negro League Baseball is its own league, you know, Japanese its own league. Especially when you talk about like Hugh Duffy and, and the rules in the in the late 1800s were were very different. Um, and for you know for a time there, walks were counted as hits. Well, that's not a thing. And I always look back at Josh Gibson. You look at his his Hall of Fame plaque, and it says hit upwards to over 800 home runs. Obviously, alluding to the fact we don't know the exact number. It's just so hard to know the exact numbers that, that these players put up. So, yeah, I don't want to see, like I said, the records is the, the only thing I have a problem with. I just, I don't know how you're really going to justify that and know exactly what you're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, with the Japanese league and that league, 
I mean, you could just say it's professional baseball stats. It doesn't have to be, you know, and it could be Ichiro did this in professional baseball, this in Japan and this over here. So that's, I just wanted to get your opinion on that. So, so another thing that you do is you're an official uh, scorer with Major League Baseball. And the last time I had you on, we were previewing the A's Astro series, and I didn't really get to get into that with you. Uh, one thing I saw that you guys were doing this from home last year. Is that that was your case? Yeah, uh, we scored the games from home, you know, with social distancing and, and the protocols put in. They kept the scores out of the ballpark. So we were set up with, you know, normally the regular television feed. We also had a, a separate what's called a high home camera where you could see all nine. You can see the whole field. So we had a feed of that. Um, it was not ideal by any means. It is not the way to score a baseball game because you just don't have the relativity of how hard a ball is hit, where a fielder is and how fast a runner is going. It, it makes it really hard to make those judgments. Now, look, we've all watched baseball on TV and we've all scored games in our heads off of television monitors. So that's not that odd. But having to actually make the call without seeing it live with your own eyes is, again, just not ideal. Remind us real quickly how you got started doing this. <laughs> uh, so I've been working in baseball since the early 90s using a television capacity uh, doing stats and whatnot. And I was always in the press box, press boxes, especially in Oakland and San Francisco. And I was not shy to voice my opinion when I thought a scoring decision was incorrect. So finally, when uh, one of the old time scorers passed away, there was an opening and they said, well, you're always bitching about it. You do it. And uh, I loved it. I mean, again, it's the only way my name will ever show up in a, a major league box score. And to be a very tiny, tiny little speck of Major League Baseball, it's, it's just an honor for me. So some things you're ruling on is uh, hits versus errors. You have to decide if a guy's getting the hit or the error. Another one I saw is passed balls versus wild pitches. What other things are you ruling on during games? Yeah, I mean, the hit and error is definitely the big one. Um you know, wild pitch pass ball, but also just kind of deciphering plays as well. You know, is it a fielder's choice? Is it an error? Is it a hit? Who gets an error? Um, you know, is it on the throw? Is it on the catch? Um, it's a lot of a lot of that in interpreting the scoring rules. You know, section nine of the baseball rules is all about scoring. You have, you know, winning pitcher, losing pitcher. Um, you know, it comes up every once in a while. Where does a reliever in a short appearance deserve a win, even though he was terrible out there? You have to make that decision. Uh, but always, and always the biggest one will be hit and error, because right, that, that affects batting average and that affects ERA, and that's what the players bitch about the most. Um, you know, it's funny now in this world of baseball where analytics is really key, and errors and batting average don't play into it as much as people's exit velocity and expected average and all this other stuff they still bitch more about hits and errors than anything because that's the, the tangible number that they can grasp, right? Um, yeah. And they still get upset with it right when it happens. Have you ever had to make a decision that affected a no-hitter or something like that? Uh, luckily, no. I've actually I've scored three no-hitters. Um, one was a perfect game with Matt Cain. Uh, 
I do remember Jonathan Sanchez for the Giants in 09 against the Padres. He has a perfect game going into the eighth inning. And um, a ball's hit to the third baseman, uh, Juan Uribe. And uh, it took it kind of came up on him, but it was a terrible play by him. And I remember before reaching to the microphone just saying, there's no way he's losing a no-hitter on that. And, you know, calling it an E5. And it was no doubt it was an E5. But luckily, knock on wood, um, I have not had anything that has kept me up at night worrying about, you know, where they're affecting a no-hitter or, or a perfect game. I did. We had a play once at San Francisco. It was the Rockies. Um, I think it was Herman Marquez had a no-hitter going. And he kind of a one-hopper to Arenado, who was at the Rocky at the time, um, who kind of bobbled it and then recovered and made the out. And I was just so thankful. Because those are the plays you don't want to have to call on, right? Uh, a play that's just such a, a 50-50 ball, such a hard play, but it's also Arenado. Uh, you're just thankful when the plays are made. What about the other way, like when a player's going for a batting title late in the season or maybe trying to hit for the cycle? Yeah, that, well, here's you want a cycle story? I'm going to give you a cycle story. Uh, I never thought this would be a situation, but 2007. Uh, Mark Ellis, the A's second baseman at the time, uh, comes up in the bottom of the eighth, and he's a single away from the cycle against the Red Sox, and the A's are winning the game. Um, it's probably his last at bat. Uh, you got runners at first and second. He hits a smash to Kevin Euclid, who's playing third for the Red Sox in this game. And Euclid dives and makes a great play, and then gets up to his feet, plenty of time to throw to second to force Mark Kotze, who's going from first to second. And the throw pulls the second baseman, Pedroia, off the bag. So, it's fielder's choice, E5. I thought it was pretty simple. But, you know, because he made a diving stop, they thought, well, no, that should be a hit. Well, no, it's a two-part play. He robbed him of the hit when he made the diving stop, and then he got up with plenty of time. Um, But the crowd boos, you know, they put up on the scoreboard, the whole thing. You rob Mark Ellis of the cycle. Well, it turns out the Red Sox end up uh, tying the game in the top of the ninth. The game goes into extra innings. Mark Ellis comes up in the 11th inning, gets his single, gets his cycle. The A's win the game in the bottom of the 12th when Eric Chavez hits a walk-off home run. So everybody should be happy, right? He's got a cycle, got a win, got a walk-off. In the post-game locker room, uh, they're talking to Eric Chavez. And Eric Chavez, at, at that point, was the only other player to hit for the cycle in the Coliseum. So here's... Eric hit the walk-off home run, and they asked him about Mark Ellis hitting for the cycle, and he responds by saying he should have gotten, he should have been hitting for the cycle twice because he got a hit in the eighth inning. That should have been a hit. The official, the official scorer should be shot and should not be invited back. <laughs> wow! And you got to hear that. <laughs> I got to hear that. And the thing is, I I, I known Eric because working in television, I travel with the team, so I knew him. He had no idea I was the scorer. But it's just, I just thought it was hilarious. The official scorer should be shot and then not invited back. That's, so you you said something about making the call on the mic? Yeah. It's not, it's not going over the PA system, is it? It's just, no, not, not in the stadium, just in the press box itself. And then the scoreboard operators in the stadiums then will put up the call on the scoreboard. Okay. I was, so you're, you're calling it something so the reporters and the – scorekeepers and all that can have it exactly all right so another thing i read is that 
players can ask the league to review your decisions. Have you ever had any calls overturned? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've had a couple calls overturned, and it's never a good feeling. Um, yeah, so there's an appeal process now. So it used to be um, before 2012, um, you know, players didn't like a call or coaching staff didn't like a call. They called a press box. Uh, the scorer could actually go down into the clubhouse and talk to the players or the coaches. Um, and there would be some heated arguments and some uncomfortable situations when that was taking place. So they kind of put an end to that in 2012 and they said, okay, if, if there's a disagreement, the player or the club can send in, send in an appeal. And now there's an appeal review board. It used to be uh, Joe Torre was the final word when he was in the major league baseball office. Last year it was, it was Chris Young who was the, uh, the guy it's going to be a new system this year um depending on who who's in place in baseball i can't remember exactly who's going to do it i think it's going to be uh gregor blanco and there's one other former player that's going to kind of deal with the review process so they would put in the review uh we have a chance to state our case they would they the league would send us the play and we would explain our call and then it would get either turned over turn now it was interesting with joe torrey who was obviously a hitter right almost every error got overturned back to a hit because joe torrey thought everything should be a hit when chris young was doing it a pitcher he thought everything should be an error so everything stayed errors it was just really hmm. interesting how their viewpoints on plays happen it's just it would be frustrating when a play would get overturned because obviously you feel very strongly in your judgment um and a 50 50 call why would you not go with the scorer's decision he's the one in the ballpark but you know, that's the system they set up, and it's we all have to live with it. How long do you personally have to change a ruling? Have you ever made a call during a game and, and went back and changed it when you thought about it or looked at it again? Yeah, a couple times I have. You have 24 hours to change. Um, and here's Okay, here's another funny story for you. It involves Mark Ellis again. Um, so the first time I ever changed something, it was a, Mark Ellis hit a fly ball down the left field line. I thought the left fielder. Should have caught it. I called it an error. Uh, the team disagreed. They thought it should have been a double. Uh, it didn't lead to a run. It really wasn't anything. And uh, again, I was in a little unique situation because traveling with the team, I'm actually, I was on the team plane and both Ellis and the A's manager at the time, Bob Guerin, came over to talk to me about it. But it was like, it's fine. It's a double. It doesn't affect the pitcher's ERA. I said, I'll, I'll give him this one sort of thing. So to change the call, you call the Elias Sports Bureau. So I call Elias and I said, hi, I was a scorer in, in Oakland. I want to change a call. And they go, okay, what's the change? There was like no special code. They didn't even ask my name. It could have been anybody <laughs> calling to make a call, to make a change. There was like no checks and balances. I'm like, okay, that was easy. Has, has any, I read this too. Has any player ever tried to get you to change your call after the game? Like they're like, hey, let me, let me talk to that scorer. I'm going to try to talk them into it. Yeah, you, again, before 2012, it happened a little more regularly. Um, now, not so much. You know, the, again, they'll send in the appeal. I actually had one time when Ozzie Guillen was the manager of the White Sox. He called the press box in the middle of the game to complain about a call. Um, and this is during when the White Sox were like in a five-game losing streak. They were losing this game to the A's. And, and this is what he's worried about. He's worried about an error in his first baseman. And it's just like, Ozzy, you got better things to do than calling me right now. Have you ever initiated a meeting with the player to make a better judgment on a call? No, but I've talked to players about 
you know, before games about plays that they felt were not called correctly or, or how we should look at it. And again, Eric Chavez was a great resource for that at third. And, you know, he was a gold glove third baseman. And he always felt that as a third baseman, any ball that was hit to him, no matter how hard that was in one step to either his left or his right, was a play he should make. He said, now, if he had to go two steps on a hard hit ball, that's a different story. But he was very, you know, very much the type of player was, if it's hit to me and it's one step either way, that's my play. If I don't make it, it's an error. He was very honest about that. Um, talked to Jason Kendall about uh, catchers catching pop-ups, foul pop-ups, you know, how hard that is to, to rip off the mask and, and read the backspin and know where that's going. Um, and he was pretty honest about if he felt like if he stopped his feet, that meant he knew he was going to catch the ball. And at that point, if he dropped it, that was on him. But his feet keeps moving, then it was too hard of a play to really get under. And again, it's, it's a good way just to kind of look at plays to see how a player's body's reacting. Um, you know, baseball is really hard, and that ball's hit really hard, or it goes high in the air in a, in a difficult spin. So any clue that we can get to make our calls easier those are really helpful. All right, let's move on to the Oakland A's. Uh, 2020 American League West champions. Uh, you and I spoke, like I said earlier, uh, before the series last year. Do you remember what your expectations were going into the series? Did you think you guys were going to take it? No, I was worried about the Astros and, and their offense, uh, how good they their offense was and the dynamic players that the, the Astros lineup has. Now, the games in Dodger Stadium, it was bombs away. I didn't expect home runs after home runs after home runs like we saw. That was – Dodger Stadium has always been known as a, a pitcher's park. Um, and to see the ball flying out of there like it was, uh, that was just so odd. Um, you know, and the Astros, credit to them, they took advantage of every A's mistake. Uh, they jumped on pitchers. They jumped on um, – Mistakes, they used their bullpen well. I mean, the, you know, the, the one game the A's won with the Chad Pinder home run, a seventh inning three-run homer to tie it up, a home run that had really never been hit in A's postseason history before, a late-inning home run to tie it like that. So uh, that was fun, but the A's just didn't have enough pitching to combat uh, the great Astros offense. Yeah, it was sort of like a home run derby. Uh, what, what were the reactions from the fans and the media? I mean, what they feel about it? I mean, I, they had to be... I mean, the fans usually are pretty more confident than the sports writers, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I, but I think they realized, you know, when you see that Astros lineup, especially with Springer last year um, and the postseason experience that, you know, a 60-game regular season didn't tell you the full story, especially for an Astro team that by mid-September knew they weren't going to win the division but knew they were going to be in the playoffs. So they can kind of go into cruise control at that point and just get ready for the postseason. And then when the postseason hits, they turn it on. Um, you know, and they got terrific pitching out of their bullpen. Uh, as a Dusty did a really good job uh, working his relievers. And I think for A's fans, and I don't know, I can't speak for all of them, but, you know, going in the next series when they were, when they were playing the Rays, I know I was rooting for the Astros. I, I, I just... I was really impressed with what they did against the A's that I thought, you know, I'd like to see this team go further and also a little bit justify the, the beating down they gave to the A's. Yeah, the first three games against the Rays, the, the Astros didn't do anything. It was such a, a night and day situation. So, so last year, the, the A's 
I would say riding high, you know, winning the AO West. Uh, you went to the playoffs, kind of had a letdown. And then uh, let's talk about the offseason. Uh, you lost a lot of players. I mean, I, I don't know the whole roster, but Marcus Simeon, your shortstop, I believe he was second in the AL MVP race, I believe. And you lost some relief pitchers. Uh, there's a lot of us, you know, I, I was even talking about the A's a couple of podcasts ago that we thought you guys were throwing in the towel. Like, what'd you feel about that? Yeah, it definitely seemed that way uh, for the most part of this off season that what were the A's doing? They didn't really make an offer to Marcus Simeon. They kind of made a courtesy offer. Uh, they knew they weren't going to keep Liam Hendricks. Um, you know, Simeon, yeah, he finished third in the AL MVP in, in 2019, had a little bit of a down year last year, but still really the leader and linchpin of this team. So you were kind of questioning what the A's were doing, but they still had good bones, right? They still had Matt Chapman and Matt Olson. You have Loriano and, and Canna. Um, you still had four-fifths of a pitching staff. Everything still was in a, in a pretty good place. They didn't have, really have a closer, but the A's have gone into seasons before and let the closer come out organically out of the bullpen. Mm-hmm. So they still felt pretty good. But then now, all of a sudden, everything changed, and they have had an amazing offseason. Uh, making the trade with the Rangers for Elvis Andrews, not only getting Elvis Andrews, but giving up Chris Davis, who had stopped hitting home runs, uh, wasn't the player that, that he had been previously. and was due $16 million this year. So you get him off the books and the $16 million. You get Andrews back, and the Rangers are basically paying for Andrews this year because you're giving the A's $13.5 million. So the A's took that money, and they go out, and they signed Trevor Rosenthal to be their closer. An $11 million deal. That's a little backloaded, but, but it works. And it's only a one-year deal. I'm not a fan of spending money on closers. It rarely works. But for one year, and it's really getting him for free, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And Trevor Rosenthal was very good last year, um, especially when he got to the Padres. Uh, you know, he came off the arm injury in 2019. He couldn't throw strikes, but he got it back last year. Uh, so you got your closer. And now you still have extra money to play. And you get Mitch Moreland, who's now a left-handed DH for you when the A's were very right-handed and helps balance out the lineup. Okay, now we got a closer. We got a DH. And if you look at it totally, the money they would have spent, let's say they, they re-sign Hendricks and Simeon and you keep Chris Davis, would have been about $45 million this year. Now, instead, they got Andrews, Moreland. They brought back Mike Fires. They got Rosenthal. They brought back Petit. They signed Sergio Romo. Uh, they picked up Kaleric from the Dodgers in a trade, a very good left-handed reliever. And they took a flyer on Jed Lowry on a minor league deal as a possible second base option if he can stay healthy. All told, those guys will cost about $32 million. So you get eight new players for three. You save $15 million. And you're probably just as good as you were last year. Um, that's a pretty spectacular last couple of weeks the A's have had. Yeah, I mean, you guys went from, like you said, I mean, losing your shortstop to getting Elvis Andrews, who I always felt was very good. And then let me ask you about Mitch Moreland. Can he also play first? Because Chris Davis doesn't do anything but DH, right? Yeah, Chris Davis does nothing. But, you know, Mitch Moreland can't play first. He actually won a gold glove as a first base baseman but you, you have Matt Olson, a gold glove winner in your own right 
he'll be your first baseman almost every day. Um, so Moreland can just concentrate on hitting. Um, he had a terrific first half of the year last year with, with Boston when he came over to the Padres, struggled a little bit, really wasn't getting that, that normal at-bats that he was getting, but he kills the ball in the Coliseum. He has tremendous numbers hitting in the Oakland Coliseum. So I think that – I really liked it. Of all the guys that they could have brought in, and there's still a slew of guys out there, I thought Moreland was a really good spot for the A's because of being left-handed, having success in the Coliseum, uh, and helps balance that lineup out. Yeah, I was just thinking uh, if he could play first base, not that he would ever start, but, I mean, you got to give your guys days off. And maybe he can roll to first and let your first baseman DH that day to give him a break. But with Chris Davis, he was just hogging up that. He was either DHing or he wasn't playing, right? Yeah, and that was the thing. Back in 2019, when the A's were in Pittsburgh, Chris Davis got got off to a really good start in 2019. He had 12 home runs in April and looked like he was the same Chris Davis who led the league in homers in 18. Uh, But playing left field, he ran into a fence at – Uh, PNC ballpark and was never quite the same after that as a hitter. He tried to come back from the injury too fast. He sort of changed his, his hitting mechanics and never really recovered. Um, They were not going to put him in the field. He had no arm, couldn't throw at all. So yeah, he was a DH only. And that's, that was the other thing about moving Chris Davis. It really did open up this whole market to the A's of all these players they can consider. Uh, because it got rid of this this kind of albatross on the team, and it it op- it wasn't like when they were looking for just a shortstop. Um, you know, it was just a Marcus Simeon hole they were trying to fill. That's such a very limited number of players, and the A's did a great job getting Andrews. But having the DH fill was a bigger window. Filling it filling with Moreland was really smart. Last year, the Astros uh, they lost Jordan Alvarez, who basically is the DH every game. But the only upside to that is, you know, like Michael Brantley got to DH. We got to rotate guys and give them days off. So, I mean, I think it's very important if your DH can also do something else instead of just hogging up that DH spot. So, I I think it's a pretty good move for you guys. And, I mean, I looked at your team after you made the moves. I mean, you know, I forget about these guys. I mean, you got Olsen, Chapman. Uh, Kana, if that's how you say his name, Loriano, Piscotti. Yeah. I mean, I, I forgot that you still had all these guys. So, I mean, after the moves you made, I think you guys uh, should still compete with the Astros. Uh, and, well, you're the defending champion. So, you know, defending your AL West title, I, I think you, you're still going to have a shot at it. Well, I think so, um, especially when you look at the Astros and you say, well, what have the Astros done this offseason? Um, they lost George Springer. That's a huge loss in the lineup. You know, a lineup that has these dynamic players, and he's one of them. Um, you know, bringing back Michael Brantley was huge. You know, it looked like he was gone there for a second. Uh, mm-hmm. Such a professional hitter. Um, you know, he's he's the Harold Baines of, of our time. He reminds me so much of Harold Baines. And Harold Baines is is a Hall of Famer. Um, I'm not saying Brantley's gonna make the Hall of Fame, but he hits just like him. Um, you know, if Jordan Alvarez comes back and is the Jordan Alvarez we saw his rookie year, that's a huge get. But they really, the Astros really haven't done much, right? There's not been a lot of roster movement on that club. Yeah, the, uh, well, I mean, that's how a lot of fans feel sometimes. But, I mean, when you're as deep as we are, I mean, there's really not a whole lot of moves to make. 
I mean, we did lose Springer, and it'll probably be Miles Straw. You know, that's a that's a big change. We don't know who's going to be leading off this season, but we do get Jordan Alvarez. That's good. But I mean, we went twenty nine and thirty one last year without him, so who knows? But I mean, we should be better with him. You know, uh, Kyle Tucker is more of a professional hitter now. We the infield's still intact. The the starting rotation is still there. The young kids in the bullpen. You know, we've added uh, Pedro Baez, uh, Ryan Stanek, Chizik, if that's his name. And that's a new guy we got. You know, they we signed uh, Chizik to a minor league deal. So hopefully that works out for us the way that you're hoping Jed Lowry works out for you guys. But uh, I don't know. I mean, as, as an Astro fan, I, I feel like we did okay. I think we, I mean, I just. I just feel like, you know, besides losing Springer, there's not a whole lot of things we could have done to get too much better. We thought maybe Jackie Bradley Jr. would be joining us, but that didn't happen. No. And I think the best thing for the Astros, and this is the old uh, college basketball saying, you know, what's the best thing about freshmen the next year is their sophomores? Uh, Very much with the Astros pitching staff. I mean, it was pretty much an all-rookie bullpen uh, and rookies in the starting rotation, they're not rookies anymore. Uh, they're veterans. And, mm-hmm. and that that's a big step. You know, Lance McCullers is now another year removed from his surgery. So that's a big thing. Um, you know, you still have Granke at the top of the rotation, a Hall of Fame player. Um, so, yeah, I, I think what they showed last year, some of the some of the rookies, how good they can be. Yeah, it's 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 nice that they're going to be not rookies anymore and they should be good. So. Yeah, the A's know over 162 games, it's still the, the goal is to win the division. They don't want to get stuck in the wild card game like they've had in the past. You need to win the division. And, and the Astros, even though the A's won it last year, I think in the 60-game schedule and everything else, and the fact that everybody got to play a three-game series in the first round, I think this year, if it's a full season, winning the division is a huge, huge thing. I think the Astros are still looked at as the team you have to beat. Yeah, like I said, you know, the Astros signed some veteran arms, but also we didn't have Joe Smith last year. He opted out. So we're adding Joe Smith and Jordan Alvarez. But before I let you go, I could have swore that I saw you uh, write something negative about the seven-inning doubleheaders. You have anything you want to share about that? Oh, that's just the worst. Oh, you know, of all the rule changes, you know, I'm okay with the the three-batter minimum. I'm actually a fan of that. I liked, I liked a lot more than I thought I would. The runner at second in extra innings. I like putting the game in jeopardy right away, and the fact that both teams are equal with the with the runner at second. You know, it's, neither team's getting an advantage. Um, I, I like that as well. The seven inning doubleheader just kills me. It's not Major League Baseball. We started this conversation talking about Major League Baseball. That is not Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is nine innings. You win games in nine innings. Teams are built for nine innings. And the, and the truth of a team is over nine innings, whether they can win or lose. The seven-inning games is just – it's a bastardization of a Major League Baseball game. It's just not – it's just not baseball. It's just not Major League Baseball. You know, and, and I've watched – you know, the A's weren't very good in seven-inning games. But that's not really the reason why, why I don't like them. But you saw where they were at, at a disadvantage. If you have a team that's built with bullpen as your strength – which the A's were last year. They had the lowest bullpen ERA in, in the AL. Um, a seven-inning game takes away that strength, right? Because you can go straight from a starter to a closer. And we saw the Astros do that to the A's 
a few times where they went right from Granky to Ryan Presley, but nobody in between. Well, mm-hmm. that's where the A's would feast was the in between. Um, and you see managers not really realize that you have to treat the fifth inning of a seven inning game like the seventh inning of a nine inning game. It's not normal, right? You should be pulling your closer after the fourth inning. And they just weren't getting along. I, I just hate seven inning doubleheaders. It's just not Major League Baseball. It changes everything. Uh, I, you know, I, as a fan, I want to be at the ballpark longer. Why are you making my day at the ballpark shorter? Yeah, I guess if I was at the game, I wouldn't like it. But I'm kind of the opposite of you. I mean, I, I don't like the runner on second. And the, as far as, like, being a fan sitting at home, watching two games in a row, I thought the seven-inning uh, doubleheaders were pretty exciting. You know, like, it's, it's, it, they were real quick. I mean, they, I mean it, it's weird how you take two innings off and the game just seems to be cut in half. So I get your point, but I, I thought they were okay. I, it didn't bother me that much. Oh, yeah, now we're going to have problems, Rob. We're going to have problems. <laughs> you want to go see a seven-inning game, you go to your local Little League park, and you can watch a game there. You want to watch a nine-inning game, you go to the major leagues. Well, see, that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you're shining a light on another aspect of it, going to the game. Yeah. I mean, if, if they clear out the ballpark, and bring a new set of people in, and you both only watch a seven-inning game, that would be bad. But, I mean, I, I don't think the, – the reason I don't think they should keep it this year is, I mean, last year they scheduled. You know, they knew they were going to have a bunch of doubleheaders because right. of, of COVID. And this year I think they're going to have it under control. It's not like they're scheduling a bunch of them. So I, I don't think it's really necessary to implement it. You're right. I mean, it was because of the COVID and the number of games they were trying to make up and trying to not put too much on these teams. And hopefully this year that won't be the the situation, hopefully. And it's a good point about fans, because if they do allow fans back into games, even in a limited capacity, if you try and do a split seven inning doubleheader, well, then I'm only paying 78 percent of my ticket price because I'm not getting the full nine innings at that point. Um you know, if it's if it's a straight doubleheader, I can see it more. But yeah, definitely, if they start trying to do split doubleheaders with fans at seven innings, that would be outrageous. When did they do the seventh inning stretch in the yeah, fourth inning? They have no idea. Everybody's so confused. They don't know what to do. Uh, it was I just it was terrible. <laughs> All right, David, I appreciate you coming on with me. It was a lot of fun talking to you and learning things about being a scorer and uh, talking about the A's. I, I believe the Astros top competition uh, for the AOS title once again, unless you think anyone else can compete. No, I mean, I think the Angels have made some improvements. And, you know, at the, we keep talking about the Mike Trout window, which is a lot longer now because they signed him for a long time. But you know, they've only been in the postseason once with Mike Trout, and that was in 2014. And you look at the Mariners, who haven't been in the postseason since 01, and they've made some improvements, but not enough. The Rangers are still a ways away. So it's it's the A's and the Astros to, to, to battle it out again, I believe. All right, guys. Thanks, David Feldman, for coming on again. Green and Bold podcast. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time on Astros Baseball. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Make sure to subscribe so that way you will be alerted when there is a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.